So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Caleb Cabe. I'm the pastoral intern here at Reconcile Community Church. And I'm going to back up just a little bit so there's no feedback. So yeah, I'm, my name is Caleb Cabe. I'm the pastoral intern here at Reconcile Community Church. And my wife is over there, Alina, and my little son, Liam. He's a year and a half. Uh, Will is out of town this week, so that's why I'm preaching. But typically, it would be Will preaching here, and he's the pastor. Um, so me, me and Pastor Will, we decided to take a social media break because um, the social media, we, we just got tired of seeing all the stuff that was going on on social media. Um, it's the election season, so when, when we're just scrolling through our feed, we're just seeing people argue all the time, fighting about this, fighting about that, and there was division everywhere that we saw, that we looked, and it was really tiresome. It, it was just exhausting seeing all of the arguments and all of the division, so we decided to take a little break from social media, and social media, uh, in social media, you can see the things that people are thinking in the world. So like the fact that there's division in social media is because the world itself has division. Because there's division in the world, you can see that in social media. We're divided by politics. We're divided by our races. We're divided by class. Even little things. We're divided by sports teams, right? Like it's Clemson versus USC. It's a us versus them mentality. And that's what we see in the world. But this isn't anything new. This isn't just because we're in America in the 21st century. This was happening even in the times when the Bible was written. And, Rome, and Paul, he wrote a book called the Book of Romans. And this is the reason he wrote Romans. He wrote it because there was division in the church. There was the Jewish Christians in the church, the ones who had been Israelites, who had followed God's commandments. And there were the Gentile Christians, the ones who at one point weren't able to come in. And then after Jesus came, the, they, were, they were brought together and there was Jewish and Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians would look at the Gentile Christians and they said, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law. You have to keep the Sabbath. You got to do all of this stuff. And then the Gentile Christians would look at the, the Jewish Christians and they'd say, no, we have freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And so there was division in the church. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Romans. And I think at this time with the election season and, and everything that's going on, I think that the message that Paul wrote to the Roman church is applicable for where we are in our society today. So let's see how Paul addresses this issue of division and then we'll know where to move forward and what we're supposed to do about it. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. You can go ahead and turn there in your phone or in your Bible, whatever you have with you. And we're going to start reading in verse one it's, it's Romans 10 starting in verse one. It says brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us where we were in our brokenness, but Jesus, you came to us. And you lived on the earth and you died on the cross for us. Thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know you, that we can know what you've done for us. God, I pray that as I preach, that your Holy Spirit would work, that you would change hearts. God, I pray that you would pierce us with your word and that you would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and that you would cause us to obey you. But I pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. And so looking at verse one, it says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. So the first question we need to ask is why do we need to be saved? He says, my prayer for them is that they would be saved, but why do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? Well, to answer that question, we first need to learn a couple things about God. So first, God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. That means that God cannot, there cannot be evil in God's presence. That if someone does something wrong, he has to punish them for it. He's just and he's righteous. He always does the right thing. Always. And he's the creator he has created everything that we see. He created the ground that we're standing on, the sky above us. He created all of us people. If we think about if the, the inventor of basketball, the, the person who came up with the game of basketball, he created all of the rules for basketball, right? And so God, God has created all of us and therefore he is the one who can make the rules to show us what we are supposed to do because we are his creation and he is the creator. And he has, he has created this, this world with certain standards that we're supposed to follow. And we have disobeyed. We have rebelled against what God has told us to do. And we're actually fighting against God in our sin. 
And because God is the ultimate authority, because God has all power, the punishment for our crimes against God are greater. Think about it. If, if I walked up to a random person and I hit them, I would get some sort of punishment probably. But if I walked up to the president of the United States and hit him, my crime, my punishment for that crime would be greater. In the same way, God is, is the highest authority. He's the ruler of all rulers. He's the king over every king. And so because his position is the highest and his authority is the highest, that means the crimes that we commit against God will be punished in the greatest way possible. The, the, the punishment that we deserve for our sins against God is death because he is the ultimate picture of holiness. And so the question then is what are we to do about this? If we have sinned against God and are deserving of punishment of death, what are we supposed to do? Well, first let's look at a couple of things that won't help us. And then we'll look at a couple of things that do help us. First, our zeal for God cannot save us. We can't obey God enough to be saved. Our efforts and our energy is not enough to save us. Look at verse two. He says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God. They had zeal for God, but that wasn't enough to save them. Because God requires a perfect standard. His standard is perfection. And none of us can reach that. A lot of people think that if, if my good outweighs the bad, if when I come to the end of my life, I've done enough good and little enough evil, then I'll be saved. But take that into a courtroom and think about it. If someone killed your family and you knew who it was, the person was on video doing it and he's sitting in the courtroom and the judge looks at the video evidence, everybody knows who did it. And he said, well, I know this person has done some good in their life. So they're off the hook, they're good. That wouldn't work. We would be crying and demanding for justice. And this is how it is with God. He can't simply overlook sin because we've done some good things in our life. It's not enough to say that I meant well, that I wanted to do the right thing. I had good motivations, good intentions. That's not what will save us because we've ultimately done crimes. We've sinned against God who is holy and just and he needs to punish sin. Our obedience to God needs to flow from our knowledge of God. Look at verse two. He says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's a difference in knowing about God and actually knowing God. You can know a lot of stuff about a person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know that person. Knowledge about God only leads to pride. 
if you don't actually know God. You can become prideful thinking, I know all of these facts. I know all of this theology. But if you don't actually know God, it will lead to pride. And you'll look down on other people who don't know as much facts about you. But when you actually know God, when you have a relationship with him, it leads to gratitude. Because you see the grace of God. You see, you see your sin in its full light. You see how much you've messed up and how gracious he is to forgive you of your sin. Think about it. The creator of the universe wants to know you on a personal level. This is amazing. This should floor us. Because when I look at myself and I see the depth of my sin, I wouldn't want to know me. But God wants to know me. He wants to know me personally, which is crazy. Another thing that won't fix our problem is by doing better. Look at verse 3. It says, Since they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Man, what's some ways, what's some ways that we try to establish our own righteousness? I can think of a couple. One thing that we do is we try to hide our sins. We'll cover up the parts of our life that we don't like. We'll, we won't confess to people when we're struggling with certain sins. Because if we can hide our sins, then we can present ourselves to people in a way where we seem better than we actually are. That's one way we can try to establish our own righteousness. Another way is that we'll point at people who sin in a more public way than we do. It's like a smoke screen. So we'll deflect off of ourselves and point to others and say, but look at what they're doing. They're doing all of these terrible things. They should be condemned for that. And that's a way that we try to establish our own righteousness. And then another way is we reject God's moral standard and create a moral standard for ourselves. We say, it, it doesn't matter what God tells us what we're supposed to do. I can come up with my own, my own good and I'll do that. What's crazy about that is that even if you create your own moral standard, if I were to ask someone, what do you think is good? And they would list off some things. And then I were to ask them, do you do those things? Most people would say no. Because even if we create our own morality, we can't keep it. That's how stuck in sin we are. And so all of this has been pretty bad news so far. What are we supposed to do? How can we be saved? We still haven't answered the question. Look at verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can take that word end and replace it with goal or the purpose. For Christ is the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law, the reason the law exists is to show us our need for Jesus. The reason the law is there is to show us, it's like a mirror in front of us so we can see ourselves clearly, clearly, which will then push us to Jesus to show us our need for him. It says in verse five that if we try to be saved through the law, it will lead us to death. 
It says, Moses writes about the righteousness that's from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. In other words, the way the law works is, if you do these things, you will live. Well, then the question is, what happens when I don't do these things? Or what happens when I can't do these things? Or what happens when I just simply won't do these things? If it's do these things and live, then it means if you don't do these things, you will die and it leads to death. And here is why we need Jesus. Because left alone with simply the law, simply the rules, here's the standard, do this. We're stuck in sin. So verse six through eight, we see that Jesus has accomplished our salvation for us. We don't need to convince Jesus to love us. In verse six, it says, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. In other words, we don't have to ask who will go to, who will go to heaven to grab Jesus to come find us to save us. The, the law required a perfect person to die, to save us. That's the only way we can be saved. So we would ask these questions. Where could we find one who is perfect? Because everyone I know isn't perfect. They've messed up. They've sinned. And if we found a perfect person, how would we get to them? Because I know everyone on the earth is sinful. We see the effects. We see, we see sin all around us. That's why we, we feel much of the suffering that we do because of other people's sin. So we know that a perfect person is not found on the earth. So how would we get to the perfect person if we even found one? And then if we did all of that, how would we convince that person to come and die for us? The good news is that we don't need to do any of those things because Jesus, the perfect one, saw us in our sin, saw us in our failures, saw us, came down and died on the cross for us to save us from our sin. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived while he was on the earth. And he took the initiative and came to us so that we didn't have to go searching for him. We didn't have to go find him. He came to us. I hear a lot of people say, I want to go to church, but I got to clean up my life before I come to church. I got, a lot of, I got a lot of stuff that I got to take care of first before I come to church. You don't need to convince Jesus to love you. Jesus already loves you. He loves you in your sin where you are at right now. He loved you enough that he came to the earth. He stepped down from heaven, from the perfection that was there, came into our suffering and into the pain that is all around us in the earth. And he died for you. So you don't have to clean your life up before you come to him. Because he has already come to you. He has met you where you're at. If you struggle with acceptance, you feel like no one can love you. You feel like no one accepts you the way that you are. You don't need to convince Jesus to love you. He 
has love for you. He cares for you enough that he saw you on the earth in your pain and he came down to die on the cross for you to take your place. And Jesus didn't need help saving us. Verse seven says, or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Jesus did not need our help when he saved us. He saved us all by himself. We can't add anything of value to Jesus' finished work on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross in his final breaths, he yelled, it is finished. It's paid for. Their sin has been paid for completely. It's finished. It's done. We can't add anything to it. There's a quote by Jonathan Edwards. It says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The work that Jesus has done on the cross is perfect. It cannot be added to. You ever heard the phrase, you can't add paint to a masterpiece? That's what Jesus has done on the cross. It's perfect. Don't touch it. He has forgiven you. And Jesus' salvation is readily available. In verse 8, it says, The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, Jesus' salvation is, is, is it's like this close to you. His salvation is readily available for anyone. Jesus has come down to us, bringing us salvation so that we don't have to climb up to get to him to be saved. He has made it readily available. Are we going to respond to it? Are we going to call on Jesus to save us from our sin? Because it's readily available. If so, we need to know what our response should be to Jesus' work. In verse 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Jesus has come. He died on the cross for our sins. And what are we supposed to do about it? We're supposed to believe that it happened. We're supposed to have faith. Believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it was for you. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it was for me. And it says in verse 10 that when you believe this, Jesus' righteousness is placed on you. In other words, when God looks at us before he saw us in our sin, he saw us in, in our depravity. But now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, if we believe in that, if we have faith in what he did, when God looks at us, he sees the perfect work of Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness when he was on the earth. 
And what happened to all of our sin? He sees all of our sin on Jesus on the cross because Jesus has taken all of our sin upon himself when he died on the cross, taking the full wrath of God. The second part says, confess Jesus is Lord. This means that we place everything in our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. It means that we don't get to decide how we make decisions anymore. Our decisions are based under the Lordship of Jesus, under the kingship of Jesus. It means the question, if, we, if we ask the question, what do we think about politics? We have to put it under the Lordship of Jesus. What does Jesus say about it? What do we think about our sexuality and how we express that? Well, we have to put it under the lordship of Jesus. What does Jesus say about it? What about the way that we work at our job? Well, what does Jesus say about it? We have to put everything in submission under the lordship of Jesus. And it says, the result of this confession is salvation. And so there's three things that we receive when we have done that, when we have placed our faith in Jesus' work on the cross, and when we have confessed that he is Lord, there's three things. One, we, we receive a new status. It says in verse 11 that everyone who believes on him, that's on Jesus, will, be put, will not be put to shame. Before, when we were in our sin, we felt ashamed. We tried to hide it. We tried to cover it up. We said, nobody look at me. But now, because our sin has been placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness has been placed on us, we will not be put to shame. We receive a new status, honored, loved, accepted. We receive a new family. Look at verse 12. It says, since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him. Our world, this is bringing back to the beginning, our world is full of divisions. People separate over everything. But the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel says that all of us are in the same playing field. We're all condemned in our sin, left to ourselves. But Jesus has come to die on the cross and we once were enemies of God and of, uh, and of each other. But now because Jesus has come, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We went from enemies to children. And because we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that means that all of us now are brothers and sisters we were once enemies of each other, divided over all of the silliest little things, but now we're brothers and sisters. We're a family and we belong to a new unit. God has given us the church to be our family. This is why it is important that you join a local church because that is a gift from God to you. 
When you are saved, you are brought into a new family. And if you're not part of a church, you're missing out on some of the blessings that God has for you. You're missing out on some of the means of grace that God has for you. He wants us to belong to a family so that when we have needs, they can be met. And when other people have needs, we can meet their needs. That we can support each other when we're going through trials. That we can lift each other up and encourage each other when we're feeling depressed. This is why it's important that we belong to a church. Because Jesus and his work that he's done has brought us into a new family. And we need to, we need to, to receive that blessing. And the third thing that we're given is we're promised a new future. Verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that word. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We were once a people without hope. We were lost in our sin. But now we have eternal security. It says we will be saved. The work that God has started, he will bring to completion. We have eternal hope that no matter what is happening in our world, no matter what's happening in our society, in our country, in our local community, we belong to Jesus. And he will take care of us. And one day we will be with him face to face. So we can have hope. And we don't need to be divided over the little things that separate us. All these worldly things that cause division. Because we have been brought into a new family. The family of God. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer white and black. There's no longer Republican and Democrat. We are all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. Sinners in need of God's grace and God graciously pours his grace onto us. I love what Paul says in one of his letters. He says, God gives grace upon grace. It just keeps stacking up. And so I want to invite you, if you have not called on the name of Jesus, if you have not trusted in the work that he has done on the cross, if you've not put your faith in that, if you've not confessed that Jesus is Lord, would you do that today? Because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised our next breath. Today is the day for salvation. Would you call on the name of the Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy on a person like me. God, thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit, that we now have power to fight against sin. Thank you that you have brought us together into a new family called the church. God, I pray that if there are people here who have not called on your name, that you would draw them through the Holy Spirit. 
God, I pray that you would save people miraculously, that you would transform people's lives. Jesus, thank you for the work that you've done on the cross. Thank you for living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die so that we could be brought into your family. We were once enemies of you, but now we're sons and daughters. You have adopted us. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.